And now a warning from our guest. And by the way, y'all correct me if I'm wrong. If I misdate something or misdo something, everybody needs to correct everybody because that's how we get it right, you know. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? That's how you do. This is not a classroom with the professor who knows every goddamn thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Why don't you sit down, take a load off? We got a great interview today with Dr. Modibo Kidali and Andrew Zonneveld, author and editor, respectively, of the new book, Intimate Direct Democracy. But you look tired, won't you? Why don't you Me? sit down for a spell? No, no, oh, the audience. The, the listener. Yeah, okay. hypothetical audience. See, I can't actually see you, audience. I was going to say, I am kind of tired, but. No, you look great. Well, thank you. No bags under your eyes, nothing like that. So you're implying that people who look tired don't also look great? Like, you could look great tired. That's That's true. Some people look great tired. Cute, cute, sleepy look. (laughs) Honestly, you look tired and it works for you. (laughs) I'm just saying you look refreshed, if anything. Aaron. Thank you, Sean. Are you saying it's a compliment to look refreshed? Uh, No. It's only specifically a compliment because I'm trying to look refreshed. Like, that's what right. I was going for. So you're nailing it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Kadale advocates for an urgent rewriting of social history from a new perspective that reveals the naturally occurring self-organization of directly democratic institutions by ordinary people in their revolutionary struggle against all forms of hierarchy and domination. That's from his bio on the website for the Autonomous Research Institute for Direct Democracy and Social Ecology, of which he is the founding convener. And yeah, this book does exactly that. It's telling a directly democratic history of two Maroon communities. So for people who don't know, this is a term I just learned in the last couple of years. Maroonage is the process of escaped former slaves in the American colonies, not specific to like the USA, but the Americas, going back hundreds of years during the era of colonial slavery, where people who were enslaved escaped and made their own communities, self-sufficient communities on this land outside of the colonial communities. The history of Maroons is really fascinating. We talked a little bit about it in our first Haitian revolution episode. The book Intimate Direct Democracy talks in detail about some of these communities and their practices of direct democracy and non-hierarchical organization. And yeah, I really enjoyed the book. I also really enjoyed Modibo's last book, Pan-African Social Ecology, which opens with a pretty significant section that's a biographical sketch of Modibo and his 50 years of activism. Yeah, that part's involved. really fascinating. You get a little hint of it in this interview, some of his history with activism. But yeah, if you read that Pan-African Social Ecology introduction, there's it's got a has lived a long storied life. Yeah, so I definitely recommend people picking up the book Intimate Direct Democracy, Fort Mose, The Great Dismal Swamp, and The Human Quest for Freedom. It generally focuses on two different groups of Maroons in Fort Mose and the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, Fort Mose is near St. Augustine, Florida, and was a community of Maroons that was formed around the time when Florida was still held by the Spanish. So they were like 
I'm not going to give the whole stories. There's a lot of interesting stuff about both of these groups in the book. And we touch on it a bit in the interview, but for the purposes of listening, I think you just need to know these are maroon communities of escaped slaves and also indigenous people, others who were sort of fleeing colonial society for various reasons. They're often multiracial communities that wanted to get away from British or Spanish colonialism and practice living together in a community, making decisions together in an intimate way. Yeah, and the Great Dismal Swamp, some of the Great Dismal Swamp remains today, and it's labeled as such on maps. You can look it up on the internet where it is. But it used to be that the Great Dismal Swamp extended much, much further for a longer, just a huge portion of the East Coast was this swamp area that made for a good place for maroons to hide and build community because it couldn't be used for farmland. There's maps in the book, more details in the book. And yeah, highly recommend the book. I just also want to note they're a small publisher. So it's a really great place to go and buy the book if you're interested in this subject. I know that it helps them a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, it's a great interview. It was an honor and privilege to talk with Modibo and Andrew. And I guess maybe we could uh, we could get to it and play the CD, tape, DVD, audio file. I totally agree. Let's play that. <laughs> of course, I need to uh, just pull the drawstring on this uh, gasoline-powered file player. File player, yeah. It's, <laughs> we were having a, we wouldn't usually use this, but we're having a power outage right now at Seriously Wrong Headquarters. We had to resort to fossil fuels. Sorry, I know it's not ecological, but yeah, we have powerless mics and recording equipment that we can. They work without electricity. It's kind of a secret how they work. But in order to play the file, we need to power up the generator. And I know it's not setting a great example, but do as we say, not as we do. So with apologies to our guests, uh, <laughs> I'll just pull this. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Listen to that baby purr. <laughs> and now I'll turn on the audio noise reduction to get rid of that purr because we don't want that playing over the tape the yeah, whole of time. Of course not, no. That'd be a poor listening experience for everyone. And then we'll start the interview tape file. Laserdisc. Play. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. Today, we are joined by Modibo Kadali and Andrew Zonneveld. Their new book is Intimate Direct Democracy, Fort Mose, The Great Dismal Swamp, and The Human Quest for Freedom. Modibo's the author, and Andrew is the editor. And if you're not already aware, they wrote another incredible book, Pan-African Social Ecology, in 2019. Both of these books are crucial, revolutionary reads, deeply inspiring, joyful, Brimming with wisdom and insight, I can't recommend them enough. I think they're critical contributions to the social ecological canon. So first, thank you both for being here with us today. It's a pleasure to share this time with you and talk about this new book. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure, pleasure. We might get you to write the next blurb for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to, anytime, anytime. <laughs> I can make it even more over the top to make up for the fact that no one knows who I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask what inspired this book to do a critical historiography of American maroonage. Where did this idea come from? Well, if you look at our first book, we call for a rewriting, a critical rewriting of all of history, really, from a direct democratic perspective. We believe that there's intimate direct threads in all of social movement from the beginning of recorded history to now. 
And it's our task to get it out, you know, to pick it out of them. And so this is an effort to do that. Might be a good thing to talk about the value of these critical reevaluations of history through the directly democratic and anti authoritarian lens. What value do y'all see in that when you're pursuing a project like this? To understand what's been happening, to understand what's happening now. There's a directly democratic thread in the anti Russian struggle in the Ukraine right now. I mean, I could see it. As time goes on, it'll become clearer. But also to develop the capacity to look and see things. Just look at the way it develops and the way it's supported at the base so that you'll know how you can support and help it as opposed to going on the other side with the authoritarian part. You can see state creep when it comes up. You can see co-optation when it comes up. You can keep the celebrities from coming in and co-opting this stuff. Yeah. It's a very simple concept, really, that people make their own history and that the elitists don't make any history. And when they get in the way, they write that as history. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's like this elite perspective on history where these people who come into movement spaces, distort them, limit their potential, and then take credit for all the successes that the people come up with. There you go. That's the way it goes. They take the music. They take all the cultural inspiration. They take all the ideas. They take all the humanity out. Yeah. So Mordibo and I have been working together for been a good one. 10 years now, at least. Yeah. That's probably one of the most valuable things I've learned from him over the years is this idea of how to see and how you have to be looking for the thing. And the thing in question being the direct democratic aspects of history, this current mm-hmm. of directly democratic social movement that is just about everywhere if you know how to look for it and you know the right questions to ask. Mm-hmm. It has a value that is hard to quantify. If you don't have an opportunity to see what happened in the past, what people were capable of accomplishing in terms of you know their social relations with one another, And if you just assume that violence and oppression is just always the norm of the day and that nobody's ever able to get out from under it, so why bother trying? I mean, that's the impression that things give you. Mm -hmm. Let's look at it from this perspective. I've always identified as an anarchist. And when you start talking about anarchism, you start talking about direct democracy, worker self-management, and all this kind of stuff. If you're talking to somebody who's unfamiliar with it, they go, okay, well, that sounds nice. But they'll say something like, where has that ever worked before? Or they'll say something like, uh, can you give me an example? Or how would you do this? Or how would you do that? And if you aren't familiar with these histories, which are everywhere, that's kind of questions can be real stumbling blocks for talking to people who you're trying to convince on the thing. And, and they want to know. They want to know. They're not trying to fuck you up. We're <laughs> often not like genuinely curious. Yeah. And I think that understanding history in this way It's a next step beyond what they called, for many years, history from below. Mm -hmm. There's quite good texts written within that movement that have been sort of canonized in the academy. And there's other ones that are more popular, like, say, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. But even some of those books rely quite heavily on charismatic individuals. And what Modibo's work is really, really good at doing is decentering the individual almost entirely. Yeah, I don't mention George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> I do mention Benjamin Franklin, but he really wasn't a statesman as such. 
More interesting than that is, I think, the way you deal with the Francisco Menendez question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mentioned him. For listeners who haven't read the book and who might not be familiar with the history of Fort Mose, Francisco Menendez is one of the recorded figures in Fort Mose who was described by the Spanish as the leader of the fort. Mm -hmm. But Modibo, for folks who haven't read the book, how do you view Francisco Menendez? He was an enslaved young man that they brought from the Guinea coast. He was a Mandinga. And they brought him to Charleston and traded him off on a slave auction block when he was a young boy, maybe 10, 11 years old. But he was happened to be there at a certain time when the Tuscarora War was ending and the Yamasee War was beginning. And he ended up running away and fighting on the side of the Yamasee. His life is not as important as an individual, but his life was right in the middle of a context of rapidly changing events. And that's how you have to look at his life. And Fort Mose is often dismissed as a little colony created by the Spanish crown to protect the larger settlement of St. Augustine. And really, that's not the way my research tells me it was. These people really created a problem and was driving the policy of the Spanish crown in the region, really. And Fort Mose was developed as a struggle between these contending forces. But the people came down from the north, and they had a tradition of direct democracy from the Native American people to the West African flat societies on the coast. And that's how you know that the militia wasn't organized by the Spanish, because it was the Maroons organized the militias in South Carolina, and then they came to Spanish St. Augustine, and they already had a militia. You know what I mean? Mendez was already there. The circumstances made him what he was. The same thing with Tucson Louverture. Like, the circumstance made them guys. Right. And that right there, the way you just described that, that is, I think, what distinguishes you as a social historian, is when you are discussing the contributions of individuals, you discuss them as people who are of their time, yeah. who have a context, and who are also part of a collective. And it's not them leading the collective, but the collective that's moving and sometimes putting them into positions of greater visibility. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good way to say it, Andrew, greater visibility. Because Menendez could write. Right, exactly. He could write. Exactly. Yeah. And he could read some stuff. Right, he could read and write in Spanish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that situated him as the point man for the community. He was the Northern Republic of his time. <laughs> 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 he was the notary. Yeah. <laughs> that brings up one of the challenges of these directly democratic histories is that great man sort of yeah. narrative is really second nature for people, but also the records that we have. Exactly. You know, he's the writer of the community, so he appears to be the leader. Mm -hmm. How do you do history work on those communities where the records don't exist that show as clearly, say, like these quote unquote leaders? Well, you can see how people are moving. You can see where they're going. You can see the cultural artifacts. You can see what plants they have. You can see the location. And they're uncovering stuff all the time, archaeologically. That's true. Yeah, the archaeological digs now are getting to be very, very sophisticated. They're going down to the bottom of the ocean. They got lasers searching stuff. And, and they got all kind of analytical tools. And then, of course, the Fort Mose. Some of that information is recorded in Spanish. Some is in Portuguese, too, but some of it is in Spanish with the Catholic Church records. But look at the evidence, and you do it. You have to look at it closely, and you make inferences. 
but you don't make inferences and make lies about it. You make inferences based upon what you observe. It's just like any other scientific endeavor. You know, I often look at this as the same way that they discovered the atom. Nobody saw an atom. Uh-huh. You just saw the trails and the stuff, and you inferred the existence of these particles. Right. Man, that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. That's good. Oh, you like that? Well, you don't see an atom under a microscope. Right. At least, of course. At time. It makes me think of a scientist looking at atoms trying to figure out which one's the leader. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at a planet, you know, about a million light years away and figuring out which is the sun and when it went around the other side and all of that. You know, you got to infer that stuff. And none of the planets are more important than the others. That's another thing they do. They try to make somebody, <laughs> something, or some class of people more important than other people. We now go to scientists in a hierarchical society trying to be as objective as possible. I think the yeast is ready. Do you want to look at it under the microscope with me today? Take some notes. It's right here in front of us. I would love to. I was already on board before I realized we were already right in front of it. And that just makes it so easy to bend down and try checking out this yeast. Oh, look at that. You can see all the individual cells. This is so cool to have a microscope that has two sets of eyes. So like two friends can look at the same little yeast cells at the same time comfortably. Because it's like, oh, did you see the one that's kind of to the left? And then you're switching back and forth. Who's looking through the microscope? Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking that the leader cell of this clump of yeast is probably that one in the upper left. You see the one that we can still see? Right, yeah, fully in frame. I don't know, it just seems like a strong cell. It seems like kind of a go-getter. Do you agree? No, it's a valid hypothesis, but let's be rigorous. Thinking of the shape of nature, we know that everything must have its leader, every kingdom a king. Mm -hmm. So what are the objective bases that we can use to determine what is the most powerful yeast cell? With I mean, just looking, they all look like little circles. Some of them are touching each other. Some of them are floating by themselves. No crowns to be seen, surely, but uh, perhaps we can theorize one. Maybe all the leaders of the yeast cells are at the edges. You know, they're kind of on the cusp. We're looking right at the center. This could be kind of where all the safe yeast yeah, is. Yeah, mid-yeast. Yeah. Not the, the great achievers. The leaders who are out on the fringes of society, pushing no, to new frontiers. Thing. But also, on the other hand, perhaps you could have a leader yeast that's like the spoke on the great wheel that all all yeast must connect back to in the center. So right. It could, it's easier to issue commands to all corners of the yeast from the center, yeah. But on the other hand, a yeast that could issue commands from one corner to another would be more powerful than a yeast True. that's in the center. Yeah, you could be on the frontier and commanding. And there's so many just really strong looking yeast here. It's hard to tell with yeast which one's most powerful. I do feel like we've made a lot of progress today so far though. Yeah, we've identified some candidates and some theoretical backing, but yeah, it's getting kind of hard on the eyes looking through all this microscope. You wanna go outside and just take a break? Oh yeah, I try to go for a quick walk every few hours to you know keep sharp and also just to get the fresh air and yeah, the sunlight. Yeah. Let's go uh let's Let's head over here among the trees. You know, I've been thinking, you know, we've been debating over the last couple of weeks at our lab about these trees and where the king of the tree is. And some are adamant it's the roots. Other people adamant it's the leaves. And, you know, I've always been a centrist, the trunk for me, the strong and mighty trunk from which all the rest of the tree depends upon. Sorry to get on my soapbox, but. I mean, I've always been one to argue that kingness is in the biggest tree in the forest and all the other trees are just not the king of the trees 
Uh, it's kind of like taking the lowest human and saying there's some part of them that is a king. Well, hopefully it doesn't cause too big of an argument, but I've been recently sort of feeling convinced the brain is the leader of the body, the king of the body, if you will. Even. Oh, it's a compelling argument. It's obviously the brain is like barking orders at the rest of the body. and it's, Like a commander. Yeah, it's a good point. But it's a one-directional sort of thing. Oh, I was just reading this fascinating objective scientific article from our hierarchical society. You know, it's often been thought that the river, the river is a sort of leaderless phenomenon like fire. I've never believed it. I don't believe it with fire either. Yeah, you don't need to convince me. I think this is utter bullshit. You think fire can burn through all that stuff without some of the fire leading the other fire? No way. Yeah, well, there's this great paper about the leader of rivers. You can actually do a mathematical equation to determine this theoretical substream of the overall stream, which in the water dynamics of the entire stream uh, are objectively leaders. They're calling it R. Oh, it's a, interesting. Admittedly, it's not yet perfected. Uh, the theoretical basis is there, and it's the best we've got, but it looks like there is indeed actually a leader of rivers. It's a one stronger... I wonder stream, if, which all the other stream falls in around. I wonder if isolating that part of that water will give people special powers if they drink it. Leadership powers, you know? That's a theory worth following up Humans on. Humans drink water. Some of the river is a leader. Some people are a leader. It just makes sense. Right. You're drinking from a fountain or a bottle, and you're drinking you know, water from the edges of the river instead of that deep stream. Right, where that, yeah. That, the leader water. Yeah, and even like city water systems, they'll be taking kind of a sampling of all the water and like mixing it together. They don't care. They're not trying to isolate the leader water. Yes, the water of the lowest common denominator. Yeah. We should talk to our funders. I think they would fund this. We need to figure out how to drink that leader water. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We'll put the yeast aside. It's a valiant effort, but this is more important. And I think we've basically got it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're close. We know it's there. Yeah. I'm curious about choosing intimate, direct democracy for the title. How would you define intimacy in that context? Or why is intimacy necessary for direct democracy? Andrew, why don't you tell them about how you chose the title? (laughs) The title kind of came about, we had some success we felt with the title of the first book, Pan-African Social Ecology, as using a framework that Modibo had developed and titling the book after the general framework he was operating from. So we had the same approach with this book. So it was basically this thread of intimate direct democracy that weaves together these two sites of marinage in you know, southeastern North America, those being Fort Mose and the Great Dismal Swamp. As Modibo points out in the book, these are two very different sites. These are very different maroon communities. The Great Dismal Swamp is very rural. It's very hidden. The specific communities were not recorded on any maps, just the general zone of the swamp was. Whereas Fort Mose was an established town that was recognized by a colonial government and was a much more formal urban setting. It was right outside St. Augustine, which was the first European colonial city in North America. So they're very, very different places. But what connects them is this intimate, direct democracy as a way of people relating to each other in those communities and in their self-government. 
Yeah, direct democracy and intimacy is really the same thing. And we want to juxtapose American representative government and all that anonymity that we see today in what is called democracy and, and show that that's really not democracy. Democracy can only come when you're face to face with people. You know who they are. You know who the thieves are. You know who the people you can't believe are. But it's an organic, intimate community. And you can decide things like that. As a matter of fact, I grew up in a situation similar to that. We were segregated in the coastal Georgia region, and we knew one another, you know. So intimate, direct democracy is simply a kind of democracy that has to be juxtaposed to the kind of representative democracy and what they call participatory democracy, which is, that's how you get corruption in a society like this. And we wanted to show how the United States of North America, in order to bastardized democracy had to really destroy real, genuine democracy from its beginning. That's the impetus for the book, really, trying to show that the American nation-state was created not as a democratic state, but as a destroyer of democracy. On the subject of the American mythology, the democratic experiment, the phrase of the founding of America being a social and ecological catastrophe yeah. is used. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit about what makes America the social and ecological catastrophe? Well, you have to reimagine the past and imagine the president, really reimagine what the future could be. But when you look out your window, that's not the way it was three, four hundred years ago. And I grew up on the coast and I could see remnants of it in the swamps and in the bogs and in the woods, you know what I mean? I would actually find an arrowhead. And what is ecologically down there now is poison water, poison air. I mean, it's really a hard, ecologically destructive kind of situation if you look at the health effects of what's going on down there now. And if you drive up the coast and look at the Great Dismal Swamp now, which I've visited, It'll be a nice thing to pile your canoe up and down those rivers, but those canals are man-made. The natural swamp itself is completely transformed. And if you look at the Everglades, Sean, you've been on the East Coast here? I haven't, not there. Aaron, you've been on the East Coast? I've been in New York and Florida. New York cities? Yeah. In Florida, you go to the Everglades? No. Yeah. Well, next time you're down there, you go around the Everglades. See, the thing about Andrew... Andrew is really explorer. He goes around looking at stuff. <laughs> he takes his canoe, his kayak, you know. He goes around, he figures it out. But uh, you got to have vision for that kind of stuff. And if you look at it now, what is now the Everglades used to extend all the way up beyond Lake Okeechobee, which is in the middle of the state. You know, there's big, vast sugarcane fields and big mega crop production facilities there. But the point is, I am 79 years old. And I can see the ecological degradation in my lifetime. I can see it. You know what I mean? Little places where I used to swim, I can see the water. I can see the bottom. I can see the fish. I don't see them no more. Oh, yeah. It's awful. It's bad. Yeah. And it smells bad. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's American capitalism. You know what I mean? That's what it is. And I can imagine if in my lifetime, which is 78 years and about 20-some years of conscious existence, can you imagine what it looked like 200, 300 years ago? One line from the book along these lines that stuck in my head was talking about this kind of degradation that some people call it development. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about that word usage in that way before, but definitely 
Vancouver city politics where we live, there's so much talk about developers and the interests of developers, but really what they're doing is, yeah, destroying the environment in a lot of places. It's a weird word, development. Yeah, the word development is a material kind of concept. It means it's a capitalist thing. If you can produce more stuff, then that's more development. Even though the same stuff that you're producing, you end up being strangled by it. Yeah. It's really a wasteful way of living. Like, I'm looking at my garbage cans now. I got so much garbage, I don't know where to put it, you know? <laughs> and then sometimes people call the garbage storage. They got storage facilities all over. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story facilities are places where you put waste. They even got scavengers go there, you know, these people go there and they bid on the thing before they open it, right? <laughs> yeah, you store it until you die or they you can't pay for it anymore and then they yeah, sell it off to someone else. Yeah, they sell it to a, a person who don't even know what's in there. He makes a bid on what's in there and then they give him the key, he opens it up and he hopes he can he can get rid of the stuff. And that's crazy shit if you look at it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're in it too you know what i mean we, we are in it we are all the way up in it the sort of profit motive piece of this sticks out in relation to the dismal swamp and one of the sort of eco communities we're able to find spaces outside of colonial society relates to the swamp not being able to be used to grow tobacco and other cash crops yeah, yeah. that was the way it happened the great dismal swamp which is much much bigger than what it is now you just a little fragment again that doesn't even resemble this form of glory but they couldn't develop tobacco going south so they went up into the flatlands of virginia and that's why richmond is up the james river so you can see how the course of i use development but i call it capitalist then i put development in quotes capitalist development takes then down south with the rice they couldn't go that far inland because they were dependent upon the flow of the rivers, the flow of fresh water downstream. And then that's how Charleston developed. One of the things that stood out for me that I wanted to bring up at some point in this interview, maybe it's a good time now, in the first book, it's touched on in this second book too, but it's something that rattled in my head for weeks is the interconnections between direct democracy and science. Now, I'm, oh, yeah. We're big fans of direct democracy and big fans of science. Mm-hmm. You know, we've debated scientific socialism with Marxist-Leninists on our show before. <laughs> and the direct democratic features of the scientific process are alluded to a few times across yeah. these volumes. Yeah, yeah. That's how human beings made progress about understanding the world in our context. Even now, anytime a group of people get together and work together, you got to validate what you see and what you find. And that's how human knowledge develops. I mean, there were scientists, not individual scientists who were trying to pip other people, but there were scientists all throughout the early history of human beings on all the continents of the world. Of course. Scientific knowledge has to be collective, Mm -hmm. and it has to have a social need for it. Mm -hmm. And of course, I contended that it was with the advent of the social surplus for individual use that took scientific knowledge off into another direction. Mm. And now we see it in its most absurd form. Mm. It scares the out of me, really, man. Yeah, man. Have you all ever read a book by Clifford Connor called A People's History of Science? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't, no. Nope. It's a really essential read on this subject. Yeah, it's a classic now. It's a classic, yeah. I would definitely call it a classic. A lot of people don't like it because I think people are sometimes, they feel a little weirded out by 
ideas of science as something that everybody does instead of something that a small group of elite people do. Yeah. But it is a directly democratic, bottom-up look at science. It's called People's History of Science by Clifford Connor. Yeah. Another classic of the history of science, which any intro to history of science or philosophy of science course in university will probably require is Carolyn Merchant's The Death of Nature. Mm-hmm. And Carolyn Merchant herself was very influenced by social ecology, or is. She's still with us. I don't know why I shouldn't have spoken of her in the past tense like that. But The Death of Nature is really, really key for looking critically at the so-called scientific revolution and understanding that a lot of what people understand to be formal science is rooted in extremely violent sexism, patriarchy, misogyny. It is, it is. Mm-hmm. And that work, to me, really connects well with another historian and philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend, who, interestingly, Murray Bookchin hated. But Paul Feyerabend had a really great criticism of the scientific method, where he said the scientific method is not something that consistently exists when it comes to actual, be it experiments or what have you, done in an academic setting people tend to fudge the rules on what's called the scientific method, which connects really, really well with Carolyn Merchant's book, where this idea of method as being something that only kind of an elite male practitioner could grasp and understand really existed as this kind of exclusionary force. And this idea of, you know, only we get this, y'all don't have the brain power for this. Yeah, that elitist thing in science is really, really dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. And it emerged at the same time as the transatlantic slave trade was emerging and as Mm -hmm. capitalism was emerging, as nation states were beginning to consolidate and crystallize. Yeah, this hierarchical ideology is like really naturalized by all these sort of material forces and that's being put into the conception of science. Mm -hmm. And for most of human history, the practitioners, especially of medical science, were women. Women, yeah. And that comes from very early on. Their knowledge was really, really only subjugated when we had these elitist armies and elitist people started confiscating all the artisans and confiscating everybody who had any knowledge and put them in the service of them and started conquering other people. It was a function of the state. It was was. James I, I believe, in Britain who really got the ball rolling. But it was the so-called witch trials were just a mass execution of women scientists. Yeah, well, it happened in other instances in the Far East and mm-hmm. early on, too. That's in the New Books. Oh, man, that's great. I'm stoked on that. You can see yeah. it. You can see it happening all over. It's a part of the struggle of human beings. Yes, I mean, I, so I really recommend those works for anybody interested in a more critical view of the history of science. But history of science is fascinating for me. It's one of my favorite things to read. Yeah, yeah. Just all human knowledge comes from people working together. Mm-hmm. No individual person came up with a patent, you know, with buying selling shit. That's like people be saying, who invented fire first? You know, who, who the fuck? Fire, fire is a part of that. Like, yeah, who got the patent on fire? Like, who invented a tree, you know what I mean? I mean, there's lightning all over every place. And somebody invented it? What kind of shit is that? You got to pay rent to <laughs> Admiral Firesley, who invented fire in 1415 or something. And then Benjamin Franklin, he invented electricity. <laughs> Yeah, the universe, it had no electricity until he pieced it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah the lightning striking all over everywhere. But the thing, thing that I was trying to show is that human knowledge comes from people working together and communicating with one another. 
at a local level too, because you got to verify it. They are the ones who's interested in nature the most because nature is what they are a part of, really. I mean, for, for most of human history, human beings thought they were a part of nature yeah. as opposed to being something above nature. The scientific intersubjectivity of how you're verifying things with other people, yeah. like the social yeah. process of science, it, social. it feels really connected to the intimate direct democracy thing. And in direct democracy, you're doing that same sort of intersubjectivity testing. You're testing your ideas against the community and consensus is looking for sort of intersections and where people see things the same way or differently, the same way that science works. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it works. That's exactly the way it works. You have to make sure that you keep these academics from messing it up too bad. <laughs> you know? Really, for Fort Mosaic side is like that. The community people came out and made sure that, yeah. Man, I didn't know the whole drama surrounding the Fort Mose site. Big drama, big drama. Man, <laughs> I only found that out a few months ago. We already had the book to press, but the land was owned at one point by a white dude yeah. who actually knew that the site was on there, but the St. Augustine Historical Society was even more racist than this dude, and they didn't want anything to do with it until he started digging himself and found the artifacts. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it was wild. Then the universities got involved. They convinced the historical society to buy it back from the dude. He wanted to sell it for way more money than it was worth. And it was this whole big fight. And now his family, he's dead, and his family still owns a whole bunch of the artifacts from Fort Mose that are sitting in one of those storage containers that Modibo mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And because of animosity between them and the local government and the universities, the family is kind of belligerently holding on to these artifacts, which is just awful. Well, why don't you tell the story of Angola? Oh, yeah. So the Angola community was on the other side of Florida at the mouth of the Manatee River and Manatee Mineral Springs, which is south of Tampa, north of Sarasota. And the town of Bradenton currently sits on the former site of the Angola community. This was a Maroon community, a multiracial community, just like the two communities that we talked about in the book. It lasted from, best anyone can tell, around 1812 to 1821. It was destroyed in 1821 by an American raid. American military. Military raid, yeah, by mm -hmm. the Americans. The site was essentially neglected and lost to history until a woman named Vicki Oldham the journalist in Sarasota, which is very near to Bradenton. There's also a majority black community near Bradenton called Palmetto. Essentially, she had read about this possibility of this maroon site existing in a book, but she was hired to work on a documentary about black history in Bradenton. And that documentary in the script, it had said that black people didn't arrive mm -hmm. in that area of Florida until after the Civil War. And she knew, she said, well, wait a minute, I read something else about there being room communities here. So that got her interested in trying to find this site of Angola. And she actually helped these documentarians to rewrite the documentary. And then she organized this nonprofit called Looking for Angola. And they were going to put together a documentary, which I think they eventually did, but I haven't been able to find mm -hmm. it. But she actually correctly identified the archaeological site before any university professors were involved. And now there are professional historians and archaeologists involved and have excavated the site. What little is left is that whole side of Florida, like much of Florida, it's so overdeveloped that there's hardly a natural space left in any kind of waterfront area. 
but there happened to be this one little town park. It's like literally one square block that wasn't developed. And it was the site of the old Manatee Mineral Springs, which was the freshwater spring where the white settlers had always said that they got their water from. And so Ms. Oldham had determined that certainly the Maroon community would have been there first and they would have used the same site because of the fresh water. So let's dig there. And with help from some professional academic historians and archaeologists, they were able to gain permission to dig there. And sure enough, they found very good evidence of the Maroon community. But it never would have happened without her years of work to try to get this story told. And then it turned out that there was some primary source document that indicated that during an 1821 attack by the American military, most of the Maroons in the Angola site fled to the Bahamas. And Ms. Oldham was contacted by a woman in the Bahamas who had an oral history in her family of this exodus. And so there's now like a lot of people who've done genealogy and trace their roots back to this site in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And every so often they come over to Bradenton to have a gathering and a celebration. Yeah, the genome is helpful. The genome is really, really, really helpful. Let's just look at that. Let's just look at that. Mm -hmm. If you go down there now, there's this place called Palmetto, which is where the maids and the yard workers and stuff of the people Mm -hmm. in Sarasota live, they're the black people. It's just like West Palm Beach and Palm Beach. Right. It's just like up and down the coast, the white people live on the coast. Or it's like Brunswick and St. Simons and Jekyll Island, right. you know? Mm. So when the people who live on the island, who are their descendants, they were to write it from the way things look to them today. Right. You know what I mean? They think it looked like that today. First white people came with their ancestors. Yep. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But it took a long time just to get people to see that there was indigenous people Settle up and down those very islands. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. It's the same with the Angola example. If you literally go to this park that I was telling you about, Manatee Mineral Springs Park, they have all these historical placards there and they're in conflict with each other. Like, if you actually take the time to read them. Yeah. And that's also something that I got from you, Modibo, is this. I read all them damn signs. Yeah. Reading all of these historical markers because they put some wild shit in these historical markers. Yeah, yeah. And then they categorize stuff. To give you an example, the reason that I know Menendez mm. came up through Riceboro is because when they documented the slave raids on the plantation there, they always say contraband. Mm. That was the Spanish raiders. Mm-hmm. It was the black militia. They, called, they didn't know what to call them. They called them contraband. Mm-hmm. And they weren't white. <laughs> they weren't English. Yep. They were runaway slaves. That's what they were. And the public history installments like that, that will tell you what people believe and what they're teaching children in school. And I think that history is a really, really important battleground for all of our futures, you know, for the futures of our kids. It pissed me off when my kid comes home and tells me some wrong shit she learned in school. And the white supremacist aspect of that is horrifying. You know, if you really go around and look at these historical markers everywhere, this is the most racist shit you've ever seen. And it's just publicly up all over the place across the country. Modibo, I think in, in the book or an interview, made a joke about how, like, if they if you go to an archaeological site and you see a, a mound that people assume that, oh, yeah, the, I guess the king lived on top of that. You know what I mean? And like, like, literally, if you go, there's a mound site uh, right outside of Macon where Modibo is right now called the Akmogi, uh Mount. 
Oh, this and is, well, it's going to be they going to change the Okmulgee National Historical Park now. National Historical Park, yeah, the Okmulgee National mm-hmm. Historical Park. And when you go there, you can there's like and you there's near one of the mounds. There's a, a placard with some images and uh, just some information for the tourists, and it has this remarkable self-justifying language in it where it said the Mississippian society that built these mounds was very hierarchical. We know that because it takes a strong central government to build such big mounds. <laughs> I think it's, it's almost verbatim. Oh, and if, if there are anybody listening who might be anyone you're making, can go check it out. It's the one right in front of the big the big mound at uh, Akmogi. Yeah, and I think that what, one really strong aspect of Modibo's book is looking at mound-building cultures and showing them as developing eastward from Cahokia, which people might be familiar with also. Um, which was a very rigidly hierarchical society, but uh, those outside of that center, uh, maybe less so. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking, it's like, so the, because the mound is big, that means that it had the society had a, a rigid social hierarchy. <laughs> and you, you've determined that, that from the mound, it, it, the whole thing is, is circular. Right. Well, we haven't been able to find any big mounds that we don't assume had some sort of hierarchy with it. So it's just it's proof for itself. You yeah, know, yeah. Every time we find a mound, we're like, oh, this it's like, well, we have all these mounds and they all had central authorities. Why would this one not? People can't just do that by themselves. Break up text. Way to have my back today at the conference. You knew I was presenting my new theory, and you didn't speak up for me once, Candy. What the hell? I thought we were a team. I'm sorry that you got booed off the stage, but I don't know what you want me to do. I just honestly believe in the consensus that a large mound is evidence in itself of a hierarchical society, because only hierarchical societies could make such beautiful big mounds. Now, obviously, I don't think you should be booed off the stage for your unorthodox opinion, and I would never throw those things at you myself, but I don't know how I can stand up for you when I just plain don't agree. I'm sorry, Clarissa. But it's completely illogical. Just, oh, these big, beautiful mounds, big, beautiful mounds. Without leaders, they would never get so big and beautiful, these mounds. It's such a dogma. And you just buy into it hook, line, and sinker. It's disgusting. It's typical of you, though. I don't know why I expected better. Great. Not only do I not get academic freedom in my own house, I now have to deal with harassment campaigns via text. Perfect. Oh, harassment campaign? This is a harassment campaign? Yes, I'm being victimized. I think the real victims of harassment in this case are all the directly democratic cultures who built mounds that we are assuming were hierarchical when they weren't. You're harassing history right now. Look, if you're going to accuse me of not backing you up, it's going to be hard for me to not think about Christmas at your parents' place. Your uncle was saying Nazi shit, and you were just sitting there. Oh, so that's what this is about. You're bringing that up again. I told you he's about to die, and nobody listens to him anyway. You made me sit through that. Make me sit through everything. I just... God, Clarissa, it's just stifling. Well, you know what, Candy? Be stifled no more. I'm ending it. It's over. Oh, so this is how it ends. 
by text after you've been booed off the stage at a conference. I should have guessed this would happen. All of my friends told me that you were trouble from the start. Oh, the truth comes out. Now, I knew your friends never liked me, and you said that I was being paranoid. Well, yeah, you made a bad impression, and you could have repaired it, and you didn't. But I get a little tired of you airing your anxieties about that. I, I had to calm you down somehow. You've been doing this the whole relationship, haven't you? Booing and throwing metaphorical tomatoes at me with your friends. This is just the first time that it's happened on stage at a conference. Hey, if anything, I'm telling people to stop booing when it comes to my friends, because I get tired of that too. But you couldn't do it at the conference? I agree with them on the principle of the matter. I don't agree with how they treated you, but I agree with their critique. You know, you belong with my uncle, the Nazi, in hell, all right? You don't mean that. Believing all mounds are hierarchical is a Nazi belief anyway. There, I said it. Look, I'm going to stay over at my friend Jarrett's tonight. Can you get all of your stuff out by tomorrow morning? My name's on the lease. Let's just make this amicable. And don't touch my stuff. Fine, but I'm taking back that expensive necklace I got you for your birthday. You didn't even seem that excited when I gave it to you anyway. Fifteen and a half years down the drain. That's all she wrote. And so, Candy and Clarissa, who'd met during their undergraduate studying anthropology and archaeology at the university and grew professionally together, studying long nights, both achieving PhDs in the field, but never quite coming together to form the team that they needed to be to make it through these tough times. And so, it had to end. And these were the breakup texts. One of the things that comes up in your book that I wanted to touch on today, because it overlaps with something we've been thinking about on the show for a little while, we've been thinking about and talking about, we use the term platforms of freedom, kind of a twist on the book chin, forms of freedom, mm -hmm. to talk about digital communications technology and the potential of direct democracy via technological means. In the book, you talk a little bit about the anonymity of online spaces and oh. you know social media and that, and how it's the opposite of intimate how in order to have real intimate democracy you need to know each other somebody was reading the footnotes yeah i was in a footnote <laughs> <laughs> yeah we read the footnotes too oh, okay you read them all right. oh yeah i can't help i read the whole page <laughs> and there's some good stuff in those footnotes too if you're yeah. reading along at home don't miss out on the footnotes but yeah i was curious if you two had any thoughts on the potential of, because we live in this very technological age, yeah. and we're talking about this history of direct democracy that doesn't have this technological aspect. There's all these benefits to the face-to-face -face element of it, the intimacy of it. Mm -hmm. But do you see potential in the technological sphere? What sort of stuff would we want to look for in the development of that kind of tech? I don't want the book to be regarded as anti-technology. Mm -hmm. It's just that capitalism has influenced technology in a certain direction, you know. If you read the footnote closely, I talk about the development of an algorithm that would bring people closer together, face to face, in real time, maybe on a screen. But you really got to be able to know people in your everyday life. But there's certain algorithms that can bring us closer to that. I'm not a computer whiz or anything, but I think that the computer, the internet is like the telephone or like the drama, like whatever it is. And as human, it's part of human creativity. It can be used to help reach consensus. I mean, 
consensus is consensus, however way you want to reach it. These are just means of it. And you don't have to be sitting around a campfire raising your hand. That's just the way they did it for a long time in the past. The algorithm and the technology can be fashioned in such a way, but it's not fashioned that way now. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's fashioned so people buy shit, you know. It's a tough question because it really is, I think, like Monibo said in the footnote, you have to almost entirely reimagine the technology, although the potential is certainly there. Mm -hmm. And I was just talking with my friend Liberty from Firestorm Books in Asheville mm -hmm. just the other day, and they were saying to me, you know, I really hate what the internet has become, this version of the internet that we've ended up with. For younger listeners, they might not have had the opportunity to see that development happen in front of them. But for the rest of us, we can remember very clearly watching the development of the internet and kind of being awestruck by it at first and then maybe slowly depressed about what was happening. Just even if you look at ads and like the way the capitalists find new ways to force us to watch advertisements every fucking moment of our lives. It's not pleasant. And as it stands, it doesn't contribute nearly as much as it could to the development of genuinely democratic institutions. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit more optimistic than that. I think that there's a way, much like right now in the Ukrainian struggle, these little small groups of militia defenders in the neighborhood, they're in communication with one another. That's true. And they can coordinate their activities with one mm -hmm. another. And that's one of the reasons that they're being so effective. Right mm -hmm. now. You know, a telephone call from a friend is nice. But a robocall from somebody trying to sell you some bullshit is not too pleasant. <laughs> and you get a lot more of the second than you do of the first. Yeah, yeah, you do. But, you know, but while we're talking about technology, though, we should mention, because I, I mentioned archaeology earlier, and we're seeing a serious revolution in archaeology over the past 10 years. It's fascinating the hell out of me. I am working on an article for Roar on community archaeology and basically how there's been several very important communities, and some of them we would describe as directly democratic, that have only in the last decade really been discovered and understood as they should be. This kind of revolution in archaeology, in which archaeologists are learning how to look for and find more evidence of communalism mm -hmm. in history, this has been driven largely by new technologies, specifically LIDAR and GPR. LIDAR is kind of a laser. It's like radar, but with light. Mm -hmm. And for those listeners who might not know, you know, it's typically done by an aircraft. Nowadays, they use drones a lot because a LIDAR surveyor can remote control, fly a little drone over an area that's like, say, very wooded. And so this is why we've seen these a lot in the coastal region of Georgia where Modibo lives, because certain ecosystems are so green and so lush. It's very hard to do archaeological work because you can't see more than a certain distance in front of you because of all the trees. And it tends to erase evidence of human community. So when you can fly these LIDAR sensors over these areas and bounce these laser beams off of the ground, what they actually end up doing is forming a topographical map mm -hmm. of the area where you can see where the foundations of structures have been in the past. It's really remarkable. And it's really great for pinpointing and finding new archaeological sites, of which in South America and Latin America, they've found something close to like 400 new archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. And in several of these, there's been really interesting work done in which they are now having to rethink the history of the Maya with respect to how hierarchical these societies were, because mm -hmm. they were considered 
by historians previously to have been quite hierarchical societies, and maybe in some places they were, but in many other places they were certainly not mm-hmm. in the same period. And there's been a lot of really interesting writing and studies coming out with regard to that. And it's changing the way people understand the history of those regions. So in that way, there's certainly technologies that have really contributed greatly to our understanding of direct democracy. I think the basic struggle is to keep us technological knowledge and put it in the use of everyday ordinary people so they can do what they want to with it. We need to try to keep it out of the hand of the elitist scientists who try to mystify everything. That's a real struggle. That's a really a real struggle. And another thing that these instruments sometimes cost a lot of money. Right. And the research scholars can't even get a hold of them that can do the genuine research that is non-hierarchical. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was looking into that for our institute more developing. So I was like, man, we need to get us a LIDAR drone. And I looked at it and was like, oh, $25,000. We need to get us a boat, too. Yeah. I mean, a real boat. <laughs> it's LIDAR drone. But you can also hire as firms that do LIDAR surveys and stuff like that. You can just hire a technician to come out and fly over the woods or something like that. It's interesting stuff. I think more grassroots, historical and archaeological institutes are going to hopefully continue to engage with and try to find ways to access. Yeah, all of this DNA and everything is rewriting these social relations. They're going to have another whole other set of actors playing Thomas Jefferson about 30 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> the Hemings families, they still have some of that DNA in the basement of that Monticello. Shit, really? They can pick up DNA from the grave sites and then they can monitor where she lived based upon these sensitive instruments that can pick up mitochondrial DNA. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. It's revealing a lot of secrets, man. Yeah. But the thing that is revealing more than anything else that we found, that I've found, is that this idea of race, mm. it's a real social construction. Oh, yeah. There were no races around the Mediterranean. Everybody simply was multicultural and multilinguistic and multi, what you'd call racial. Mm-hmm. And then these maroon communities weren't black communities. They weren't white communities. They were maroon communities. That's what they were. They were, they were made up of anybody. I just believe that I would have been out there myself. I won't think I would have done too well on the plantation. <laughs> but I'm sure some of them had blue eyes, some of them had brown eyes, some of them was tall, short, and, you know. And the Seminoles, of course, was made up altogether. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see Gates explain that. The Seminoles wasn't even, they were native, but they were just a category made up by the American government so that they can ship those people back over to Oklahoma and keep them on the reservation. So yeah, the Seminoles, they're like a multi-ethnic group that they were classified as an Indian group during wars of extermination and conquest, but they were actually comprised of a multi-ethnic. Yeah. And and that's an important also point to make when we're talking about the book is that for people who aren't familiar with the history of the region, like the group, the indigenous group or multi-ethnic, multi-racial group really called the Seminoles that are recognized as an indigenous nation in the U.S. today. But the name Seminole actually comes from Cimarron, which which was a uh, kind of a hybrid Spanish and uh, Taino word, which there are some historians who trace it to a Taino word that meant the flight of an arrow. But that's the same word that Maroon comes from, Cimarron. Maroon comes from that word, Seminole comes from that word. And that's very, very important to understand because, because these are the same people. And so you see the word throughout the history of the region, 
but it, the Seminole as a, as a distinct group that's now considered an indigenous group to the United States, that emerges. When, when would you say that the name Seminole? Seminole probably didn't come into being until about after 17, the 1720s. Yeah, that sounds right. Cimarrones yeah. was before. It was used for 200 years prior. Yeah, and you know there were two occupations of St. Augustine. Right? right, the British and the Spanish left mm -hmm. and came back in 1892 or sometime like that, and uh, they didn't know who these people were. These people had evolved in the woods and the swamps, and uh, that's when they recognized them as Cimarrones. Mm -hmm. The Cimarrones became indigenous people, uh, ethnic people, but they simply did that for a current. Let me let me just say this: the linguistic trail is an interesting one to follow. Mm -hmm. In inferring evolution of language, mm -hmm. David Grieber and the other David, David Wingrove, uh, and the Dawn of Everything does a good job of following some of mm -hmm. these um, threads like that. Yeah. But you gotta, you gotta be a, you gotta be a, a real um, investigator, you know. Yeah. Find out. And and you know, I think that's it's the same issue with the the naming of Fort Mose. Which yeah. you know, you go to the you go to the Fort Mose Museum today, which you know is a valuable institution. But there's no part of that museum, at least the last time I was there, that even hints at the fact that this word Mose, which we're pronouncing as Mose, but it, it is not a Spanish word and wasn't actually even pronounced like that. If you look at a ton of the records of the time, even maps of the time, it's very clearly labeled Fort Musa, and Musa, of course, being the Arabic equivalents of Moses. And the fact that the fort had an Arabic name and was built, settled, and populated by people largely from West Africa, it's not something that can just be ignored, you know. And uh, there's only a few historians who've really picked up on that. And I think that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it might be that uh, our Captain Mendez, as a boy, might have been a Muslim. I'm sure most of the people who lived there were Muslims yeah. when they were, you know, when they, when they came down as slaves, yeah, they, yeah, enslaved people. Well, the yeah. part of the deal, again, for our listeners who haven't read the book, part of the deal with when, when the Spanish colonies ag agreed that Fort Mose could be settled and uh, the inhabitants could essentially live as free people, the condition was that they convert to Catholicism. Um, yeah. So at least formally, these people were Catholic. But prior to that time, and I'm sure uh, privately thereafter, there was Islam being practiced at the at the site. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand certain cultural retentions too. Yeah. Even with the Catholic Church and godmothers and godfathers and stuff, that's how they integrated within the local community. And, uh, you know, it's just, you just got to know a lot of little cultural nuances that uh, you don't know you know sometimes. You just have to reflect on them and then you say, aha, aha, now it makes sense to me. Were the Seminoles connected to the group of like 700 former slaves who were released? I remember this story being told in the book, but don't remember all the details. That's a different thing. Yeah, that was Cimarrones. When Francis Drake, who had been plundering around Central America, and he got a bunch of people who were loyal to him and his conquests and stuff, and he took them up to Roanoke there and released them. But they were multiracial. Andrew, tell them about what the research shows about on the high seas and the pirates and everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Marcus Redeker wrote a book on pirates called Villains of All Nations. It's a really, really fantastic book. And basically, pirates, for those who aren't familiar with his work on the subject, pirates of a particular time were remarkably 
directly democratic outfit. It was a movement that was responding to the brutality of seafaring life for seafaring workers. People who worked on ships were treated very, very poorly by their captains and their employers. And, you know, these people were whipped and denied any kind of good food to eat and, you know, would often die while they were working. Redeker really describes ships as being some of the first factories of the Atlantic world. So what happened was every so often, or increasingly more frequent as the 17th century drew to a close, some of these seafarers would just get pissed off and would maybe mutiny and take over a ship or would get together and steal a ship or even sometimes buy a ship from some kind of money that they stole from somebody and they would go out and try to make their own living on the sea. And the way that they would do that would just be to raid whatever they could, then spend the money doing whatever they want, sleep and eat in between as much as they could. (laughs) But the way that they went about doing this was profoundly democratic. Captains of a pirate ship were elected and they held no real power. Basically, like the captain, he called the shots pretty much only during fighting. And anytime when they weren't actually involved in any kind of combat, decisions about where to sail or when to sail or what kind of targets they should be looking for or how to spend the money, these were all made by consensus. Each ship actually even had a a small charter or constitution that they drew up explaining how they were going to make decisions explaining more importantly what they were going to do with whatever money or whatever loot they stole. And a lot of these ships had provisions in there to pay off people who were injured. So this image of like pirates having a wooden leg or an eye patch are actually very inaccurate because if you got injured to that degree, the crew paid you a big chunk of money and made sure you were taken care of and you didn't have to sail anymore. Mm -hmm. They had some of the first socialized medicine in the capitalist presence in North America. Really, it's a fascinating institution. And they're also a multiracial body of people and multigendered as well. Yeah, yeah. And these are the people, I'm inferring, they were the people that Francis Drake called Cimarronis. It is strange how they released these guys, but the books that I've read, they released them as a part of his, Drake's payment Mm -hmm. for their service. Mm -hmm. Well, it must have been some kind of contract he was honoring. Yeah. For a certain kind of service. After Drake went up to Roanoke in the North Carolina, the Palmaco Sound, they released him there. They were, they were mixed race people. I want to ask y'all, Sean, Aaron, what are y'all doing? I mean, we're on this podcast here, you're recording it. So what are y'all doing? What, what approach y'all are using? Well, our general thing on this stuff is how to take the ideas and and make them as accessible and fun to engage with as we can and make it entertaining. That's sort of our trajectory. I understand y'all. I haven't heard the podcast, but y'all are supposed to be pretty funny and stuff. Y'all are supposed to be real comedic. Yeah, we try. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we We try to. Especially in just in the sketches and stuff, I find like sometimes, especially when we're dealing with these heavy subjects where... You know, people get their backs up about understanding history sometimes for, you know, they've got comfortable, um, mm-hmm. comfortable illusions. It's not just history, too. It also applies in other places where we try to loosen the screws a little bit on, on some of these tightened ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, comedy, I just feel like is the best way to do it. And I've, I've been an improviser. Uh, since I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Um, and Aaron's a good improviser, too. He yeah, started yeah. a little later. Well, make sure, make sure I want to follow it. 
I will be one of y'all's followers. <laughs> cool. Well, that's 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 an honor. I'm I, I'm a follower of yours. I follow your yeah, books. I will follow you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know, you, it all comes together. People who write are not the only ones who think. And then sometimes they might somebody might say something. My kids even say stuff. You know, I listen to my kids and they come up with some real good stuff. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't hold back either. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes with kids, it's like they don't know any better to. Um pretend to know better and to try to yeah, be yeah. serious and all that. And if you ask them some questions, it will enlighten you. <laughs> I mean, really enlighten you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or they'll hear something and they'll just, they'll ask exactly the right question to just blow something yeah, open. Yeah. And then I'll remember what they said and I'll put it in my next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by... Leader water. Oh, I'm so bad at sports. I've been drinking water from one of the weak substreams of the overall river, and it's turning me into a loser. Well, Jimmy, why don't you take a sip of this? Whoa, hydration that comes from the specific substream that's theorized to be the leader substream of the overall river? Thank you. Oh, that's right, Jimmy. I'll tussle that hair. You identified that by sight. That's amazing. This liter water, I don't even know if you need it, but you should drink it. Oh, wow. I can feel the difference right away. Now try kicking that football, Jimmy. Whoa. I scored two goals with one kick. You'll be the leader of the playground with sports skills like that. Hey, everybody. If we don't play the game I want to play, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> what an improvement. Just have a sip of leader water to make sure I'm still the best narrator in the world. Just keep keep up that performance. Oh, wow, I can feel it right away. Now, let's check in with Jimmy at home. Oh, Jimmy, home from school. You've got something about you, Jimmy. Your head's held high. You're just, you're a happy boy. For the first time, you're usually such a sad little boy. That's incredible. What have you been drinking? Leader water. Leader water? Oh, can I have a sip of that? Oh, wow, I can feel it right away. Now, this is going to be fascinating. Jimmy and his mother have both drinking leader water. I can see a power struggle brewing. Who's going to be the leader of the house? And it looks like Jimmy's mother has won the leadership battle in the family. You know, it pays to be an adult if you're going to scuffle. But hey, keep drinking that leader water, Jimmy, in one day. Jimmy, I'm still the leader of the household, but you performed exceptionally well in the category that you're in. Hey, if that stings, Jimmy, you make sure to take it out on the other kids on the playground, okay? Oh boy, can I, Mom? Of course, Jimmy! As long as you drink your leader water! I can feel it right away. Hey, kids in the neighborhood. My mom can kick your mom's ass. You stink. Well, I think that family doesn't need my help anymore to narrate. They seem good. <laughs> Time to move on to the next, uh, next household. Spreading leader water across the world. <laughs> One powerful centralized spray. <laughs>
on the subject of social ecology, I wanted to ask, Andrew, you mentioned identifying with anarchism and the books focus a lot on social ecology, a reference book chain and that. I wanted to ask both of you about why you came to embrace these sets of ideas in the social ecological sphere when compared to, say, the alternatives. I know there's a lot of people, if you go on Twitter right now, it seems like there's a lot of people who are more persuaded by these sort of Leninist, vanguardist ideas and stuff. Yeah. I wanted to know how you came to the conclusions that you did. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, me first? Okay. Even years ago, I think that's something that whenever I would meet other anarchists, people always say, oh, you know, they have this obligatory question as you got talking in a conversation. Also, how did you become an anarchist? Especially because for 10 years now, and this is our 10th anniversary, we've, people and I've had this press on our own authority publishing. And until the pandemic, for a lot of that time, I would be on the road going to different anarchist book fairs and stuff like that. And so these questions would always come up as people get to know each other and as you develop relationships with people in different places. And it's always a really difficult one for me to pin down because there's I think for a lot of other white people my age, they came to the politics through punk music or something like that. And that just wasn't really the case for me. That just wasn't where I came from. But I guess to steal a line from Modibo, I am one of these people who's always had a healthy disrespect for authority. And I think that sometimes there's something in you that just kind of distrusts bullshit when you hear it. You know, <laughs> you have a decent bullshitometer you can more often than not start figuring out things about the world. And so, you know, I've always been really interested in history. My mother is a history teacher and I've always loved reading history. And so as soon as I started reading labor history, because I'm, you know, I'm poor, I grew up pretty poor and, and reading histories about people who were not well off, I could connect with. And when I started to see anarchists in these histories and the kinds of things they were saying, I was like, wait, a minute, I agree with all these anarchists. <laughs> At this point, I'm very, very young. It kind of just emerges in that way. And then my father, who is an immigrant from the Netherlands, he just celebrated his 85th birthday a couple of days ago. And he, some of his earliest memories are of Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And so I grew up with anti-fascism as part of my house. I heard stories my whole life growing up. Because in 45, my dad was eight. They had the famine, the Dutch famine, which is where the Nazis were basically trying to starve out half of the Netherlands. My dad lived through that. And that's not something that ever really leaves you, I don't think. Plus, he's a nice guy. Nice guy. A nice guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think that as I was reading this stuff, and my dad's always been very concerned about ecology, and I am too. I spent a lot of time outdoors growing up. And so everything comes from books for me. So like reading about anarchism and then like, so, okay, well, what do anarchists think about the environment? And so then that eventually led me to Murray Bookchin. And so that's how I started reading social ecology. And then well after that time, I was in university in my undergrad program and met a professor named Matthew Quest, who introduced me to Modibo. Yeah. So that's kind of the story there. Soon after that time, that's when we started putting all these books out. <laughs> yeah. Well, my situation was my father was really intellectual, but he was a emotional kind of like he was committed to ideas. And I remember the time when he first found out that Emmett Till got killed. Oh my goodness, he kicked a hole in the wall in our house. I mean, he said, "Oh, wow. he was upset." <laughs> and my mother tried to tried to cool him down, but he was really upset. And then I realized this man is compassionate about this. Now the same man 
some years later, wanted me to go fight for the American government in the war in Vietnam. I told him I wasn't going to fight, and I left and went to, went to Canada, and he disowned me, but he, he later came up off of that. But during the time when I was in Canada, I began to see that this war, I mean, how do you fight a war and kill people you don't know? Mm. And who's making you do that? You know what I mean? Right. And then I realized that the government was having these armies, and they were killing people. I later began to see that the whole shit was bullshit, and I ended up sneaking back into the country. And then I did do some civil rights work in the South. When I was a student at Morehouse College, they had the sit-ins, and I went downtown then. The people on the front of the line, there was a lot of students from the Atlanta University Center. They were in the front of the line, and they were all dressed in ties, and girls dressed in heels and stuff. And I was in the back of the line because I didn't have a tie on. Then I realized that we all going down there to desegregate the county, but we're really not the same people, <laughs> you know. And then when I was in Atlanta, I saw that there was a petty bourgeois class of people who at every turn would sell everybody out. So, you know, just first one thing led to another. But when I first started consciously and deliberately trying to understand this stuff, I picked up Marx, Karl Marx. And, you know, of course, everybody's impressed with the Workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. You know, I understood that part. And there were some Russian sailors in the port at Halifax where I was. And I learned to read a little Russian. I didn't understand what they were doing, but they let me read Lenin. I think they had an English version of Lenin, and I read that. I thought he was cool, but I was still looking for some hero guy, you know. So then I started teaching, and I came back to Detroit after being out in Oklahoma for a while. And uh, they were these black Marxist guys. <laughs> I never met black Marxist guys before, but they call themselves the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And they had all this literature and started reading. They said, we need a black Bolshevik party and we are black Bolsheviks. I said, whoa, <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it caused you to think. And then when I read Marx and Lenin, Marx was problematic for me when he talked about a worker's state and it would wither away. That part I couldn't get. I mean, part of the state withered away. You know what I mean? A state is there to protect itself. So that was an impediment for me. Then I read C.L.R. James, who was a black guy. He was a Marxist from the Caribbean, but he didn't talk about no withering away of the state. He started describing direct democracy, or at least something close to direct democracy. And he made a statement that the state, the nation state, was a capitalist creation mm-hmm. created by the capitalists and that this can't lead us too far. Yep. And I agreed totally with him. And then I realized that the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which I was in the organization, these people didn't even want to have no kind of bourgeois democracy among them. They wanted to establish themselves as the leaders and then everybody else do what they say. So I got purged from them. (laughs) (laughs) And then we started to do some community organizing work in Highland Park, Michigan. Then I realized that this self-government and stuff was something real. And as time went on, I began to see it's a question of just being yourself, being critical as you go through life, and it will lead you there. It will lead you. And I I feel clearer now than I ever have been. Mm. I don't feel like I've got no real unanswered questions, though there must be some. But I feel clearer and less confused now than I was early on. 
I picked up Butchkin because I, I was one of those people who believed in human beings are natural like everything else in the world, and human beings had no special role. But then Butchkin clarified that for me. So I guess it was four different I think Du Bois, he was a black Marxist mm. from Black Reconstruction. CLR, Every Cook and Govern. Yeah. Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And all of them had a class analysis. And then Bushkin, I was an environmentalist before I read Bushkin, but when I read Bushkin, I was convinced that human beings had a special place and that all of human history can be understood through that kind of lens. And, you know, it's still evolving, but I'm comfortable in my evolution. And I really don't usually call myself an anarchist because I'd rather be one than just call myself one. That came from when I used to be a Marxist-Leninist. I never called myself that. Right. Because people stop listening to you when you do that. Yeah, that's true. Like the question you asked earlier, you can say, what does anarchism mean to you? That's a hard question, okay? If you say, what does intimate direct democracy mean? Well, you can answer that. That's true. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's in the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a simple concept. Yeah. What these categories have done they take the meaning, the real meaning out of anarchism anyway, and they just throw it around and it becomes involved in all kinds of anic bullshit arguments. Yeah. And these are the people who don't want to even go do the work. You know what I mean? I, yeah. <laughs> the exact people picking fights are the people who would never show up and do the mutual aid. Yeah, that's right. They don't do the work. Like in the African Liberation Support Committee, all these Marxist Leninists was talking about what Trotsky said to Lenin back in 1924. <laughs> But, but we're finna go downtown. The policemen are waiting for us. Let's go. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> we got to resolve this theoretical dispute before we get yeah. on to the rest of the work. What happened in the 1920s between yeah. Trotsky and... <laughs> so I just got tired of talking to them. And the people who were ready to go, those are the people who were transforming themselves. The other guys were stuck. But that's not to discount the importance of history to that work of building a better world and to... Activism, for lack of a better term, you know, yeah, yeah. that's something what you want to talk about a lot is doing history is also part of our activism. And also a lot of the books that we publish through our own authority, I've always had an anarchistic lens towards what we publish, but the majority of the stuff we publish is not written by anarchists. And sometimes I think that when we get too narrow in our field of interest and too comfortable in wherever we feel like we sit politically, we don't look outside of those traditions. And I think that for white anarchists, there's certain histories that they really dig and just gravitate towards, like Spain in 1936, or Machno was doing something cool in 1920, or like there's like certain things that are aspects of European history or American history that people kind of look towards, those histories inform their entire conception of the politics. But if you break it down and say, okay, what is it that I'm actually looking for when I'm looking at these histories? You know, even though I might identify as an anarchist, I can say what I'm looking for is I'm looking to see direct democracy. I'm looking to see some kind of ecological dimension. I'm looking to see feminism. I'm looking to see workers' self-management. And like, if you can try to, actually be specific about what you're looking for, the actual principles or the actions or historical behaviors, you'll find that much more of history is interesting to you and can contribute to the development of your own politics or your own worldview. 
much more history comes relevant to you than you ever thought possible. And those questions that people ask you about, oh, well, that anarchism stuff sounds nice, but where has that ever been done before? So all of a sudden you have like a thousand answers to that question instead of just saying, well, in Spain in 1936. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it that y'all live now? We're in Vancouver, BC. Oh yeah, Vancouver, I know. But y'all live inside the city? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I never been there. I'd like to go out there and take a look around. Yeah, you know, we've gotten a lot of love from the Pacific Northwest on these projects. Mm -hmm. We're eager to maintain those connections and develop them. I don't know what kind of network of state parks or national wildlife or national, but up and down the East Coast, there are certain places that they have designated historical sites, and then they have bookstores. That's another thing we wanted to do. We wanted to be able to put this book in these various sites that are being restored by these state governments. If we took these books into the Fort Mose Museum, mm -hmm. and people say, oh, these are the anarchist books. Well, nobody's going to read exactly. them. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, nobody's going to read them. <laughs> We're already talking to the lady who runs the bookstore down there, and she's just waiting for our little books to go in there. And then we'll go down there and talk, and then we'll go up the Great Dismal Swamp, and then between that, we'll do Kingsley Plantation. They got a nice bookstore there. That's a fascinating place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, those people are just looking for books like that. And just give them an alternative point of view. They welcome stuff like this. Yeah, it's such a great idea getting these books at those specific, because I know exactly the kinds of little gift shops. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Tourist places near sites like this. These little books won't intimidate nobody. Right. And it's tricky with the pandemic, but as venues for popular discussion and community conversations, those kinds of museums can be quite valuable. I mean, we haven't really quite figured out how to get back to doing what we were doing pre-pandemic yet, but I've always thought it's really important for radical writers and thinkers and activists to make use of these public spaces that we have for yeah, yeah. a conversation of these histories in our communities. We have a really close relationship with the Auburn Avenue Research Library here in Atlanta, which is a huge Black History Research Library right downtown. And the outreach guy is the one who, he's really driving it. Yeah, Morris. That's Morris Gardner, who we give love to every time we can. Morris, Morris, yeah. I think, too, Modibo, maybe you can talk more on this, but there's always this dimension when we talk about intimate direct democracy and the dynamics of social intimacy and self-governance that always seems to be really connected to the part of the world that you're from, and which is also, you know, not coincidentally the part of the world that the book deals with. Even though we're dealing with Florida and North Carolina, the coast of Georgia, there's this long tradition of intimate direct democracy in Gullah Geechee communities. And I was glad that we got to connect that in the book, both in the introduction and in the interview section. But, you, you know, uh, Sean and Aaron, if y'all ever want to come down to the to the south and the Georgia coast, Florida, we'd love to show you around because well, yeah, you can stay you can stay at the institute. you stay at the institute or you know we and, and the uh, this is a fascinating region that is just really overlooked and uh, dismissed in a way that to me is entirely inappropriate. I recall one time I was at the Montreal Anarchist Book Fair. And uh, somebody found out that I was from Georgia. They came over. In fact, it happens quite a lot. People come over, you're from Georgia? 
And they look at me very strange as if I'm some sort of alien. And, uh, and then one person, one person said to me, you're from Georgia? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm from Georgia. And then they said, oh, huh, sorry. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, the, the fuck is that supposed to mean? <laughs> it's interactions like that that I don't understand, except for I guess that people's idea of Georgia is that it's, I guess it's like home to white yokels and the plan and, and all this stuff. But this is a, it's a really fascinating part of the world that like, not to say that there aren't white racists here, there certainly are. There are also white racists in many places in the world, but Georgia has a fascinating history and fascinating ecology. We've got everything from mountains to forests to plains to swamps and rainforests. And and the rivers rivers and beaches. Coastal Georgia is downriver of everything. Yeah, and that ecology also reveals remarkable social history and is entwined with it. And it is largely neglected by both the... I, w- I would argue certainly by uh, the academy at large, but also by the left. And I mean, to me, still, we're still struggling with this idea that like, you know, all the cool radical shit happens on the West Coast or maybe in New York. And like this entire region, the most diverse region in North America is largely left out of the equation. And it is the most diverse linguistically. It's the most diverse ethnically and it has some of the most fascinating history. And so I really encourage people, especially people who see themselves as radicals or activists or some whatever word they, they want to use for, you know, intentionally trying to collectively make the world a better place to engage with the history of this region because it reveals fascinating lessons. And read these books. Yeah. And the, book, the books are signed so that you can sit down with one or two sittings and, and cover the whole book. No, it's a readable length for sure. That's right. That's right. That's great. My first book was so big, nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now since it's so old, I'm glad they didn't read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew has done a lot of indexing. So a little book like this with a big index, you know, that's good. And then we try to put it in such a way where the chapters are short, not long and involved. And we try to keep it simple. Right. You know, it's super readable and but also very dense. I mean, there's a lot of ideas, even in a short chapter, there's a lot of ideas that come through in the service of the overall narrative. There is a, a third one in the works. Modibo can correct me if I'm telling it wrong, but, but we, we, our, our intention is to have a trilogy that yeah, yeah. can kind of fit together as a set of three books that are each around the same length and, and explore some of the same ideas from different angles. Oh, that's awesome. I, I really look forward to the third one because, yeah, like I'm I'm not just being over the top and nice when I say like these they're so dense with interesting ideas and the way that the ideas interconnect with each other, too. I just feel like there's a lot of layers that come out across the read and with the discourse and all that at the end. That's very generous. I appreciate you saying so. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, Somebody ought to write something with the, uh, this is really a, a, a Southeast Coast book, you know what I mean? It is. Colonial yeah. book. And uh, maybe there's um, there's some stuff that can be written with the interface between, you know, the anti-colonial struggle of the indigenous people out there on the Northwest Coast. This is an area and like a history that I was totally unaware of. I just had no idea about the East Coast area from Virginia down to Florida. That, yeah, the whole coast. It's, it's, you probably read about Virginia, Jamestown colony. Really, for a long time, St. Augustine was left out because it was Spanish, you know. Mm-hmm. That was true. Spanish. 
frontier. You know? And then the Spanish uh, plundering of the East Coast, that's not a part of it. And the, the network of, uh, of missions up and down the East Coast and then back over by the Gulf of Mexico. And I know y'all had y'all share of Spanish missions over there. Did they, did they go up that far? Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think... Uh, yeah, they came up to all... I know the Manitoba history better. Oh, oh okay. that's where I grew up. Well, now that's interesting. What's the native populations there? They, they're still there now, right? Yeah, well, it's in Winnipeg, you know, there was Treaty 1 signed between the Canadian government and the Métis people. So it's, uh, you know, and they actually had the right to, they signed a treaty basically ensuring Winnipeg would be a Métis nation of self-determination. And then they just completely ignored that treaty later and, you know, pushed mm-hmm. them out. They hung one of their leaders. He was a, he was actually a member of parliament and he got hung for being a traitor, uh, as Louis Riel. Remember the, the Manitoba parliament. He was a member of federal parliament. Well, Canadian parliament. Yeah, Canadian parliament. Also, something that you brought up, Andrew, about the the book fair, it almost seems like it's making the same mistake that the work that you two are doing is a corrective for on on multiple layers, which is, it sounds like the person was mistaking, say, like perceptions of like the political leadership of Georgia for the people of Georgia. Exactly. And there's this this constant conflation between those things. And sometimes political leadership will push that conflation for their own ends, you know, be Mm -hmm. that they represent. The people, but it's the same also with what Bookchin talks about in terms of hierarchies in nature and how we project these our ideas of social hierarchies onto nature, yeah. and then we say, "Oh, look, we found this hierarchy in nature. That means it's natural, which means that what we do is justified because we can find it in nature." But the whole reason you find it in nature in the first place is because you're projecting it out there because it's your pre-assumed conclusions. Um, the line of the king of the jungle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it's the same also with the history and finding these leaders right. and saying, oh, this this is defined by this leader. And it's like, oh, we've always needed leaders. We can tell because in every period of history, you always find these leaders. Right. But the reason that you're finding these leaders is because you're trying to say, okay, who's the leader here? And right. that's always the question that you're asking. It's the same self-justifying sort of process like that commonality stuck out to me there when when you were mentioning that person saying you know making that mistake about the people of georgia yeah it's something that you see and i guess i'm used to seeing it from historians and archaeologists montreal anarchist book fair It, it is that same problem that comes up from historians and archaeologists and politicians and people who work for ngos or or whatever but I guess it, just, it makes me sad when I encounter anarchists and socialists who exhibit that behavior because it's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish for the world. So I think that that's... It's writing off a lot of people. Uh, it's regrettable, but I hope that people can start to see past the regionalism and, and realize that just because a certain area of the world is held hostage by particularly awful politicians who in the U.S. there's there's really... And then most, well, just about everywhere, there's really none that aren't. But, you know, just because we have some nasty, racist political leaders here isn't a reason to invisibilize the whole rest of the damn place, which is just fascinating and beautiful part of the world. Well, this is where the American settlement, this is your initial settler colony down here. You know, Charleston and, and Jamestown, these were the first settler colonies, the English settler colonies in America, and of course, St. Augustine was before them, you know. And the resistance to that settler colonialism began immediately and is a part of the history of the region and and is still part of the the living history of the region. And the idea of resistance in the South, you know, aside from Modibo's work and a few others, 
there was another book by some friends of ours, Neil Shirley and Sarah Lee Stafford, who wrote a book called Dixie Be Damned, which was a really good, really good history looking at several specific examples of like Resistant. radical movements in the, the South, mm-hmm. what they call insurrectionary movements in, in the South. It's an excellent book. But more studies like that need to be done by people who have these left libertarian left politics because it's really a huge missing piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Both of you mentioned bullshit when I was asking why. (laughs) (laughs) There's something I've noticed also in talking to other people in this direct democratic sphere is the word bullshit will come up in the first couple sentences. If I ask (laughs) why this instead of something else, I can't really stand bullshit. I can't tolerate bullshit very much. Let me hear. There are people who come around who read one paragraph, one part of Das Kapital, <laughs> and they want to talk about that the whole fucking time. That's bullshit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How many yards of linen? And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's bullshit. All you want to know is why is people like us always use the word bullshit in the first couple of sentences. Man, I don't fucking know. He asked both of us the question, and then I gave my little sentence. Yeah, I don't know. Bullshit. It resonates with me. I don't know. I can't stand the bullshit either. When someone tries to give me some bullshit explanation for something, especially cheering for some hero or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. When people start bringing out that like hero cheering stuff, yeah, it makes my skin crawl. Like I just know they're not talking about something real anymore. It makes me think about like growing up and just hearing maybe some politician on the radio or something like that. Or there's things that you can see happening in the world and you just know that it's wrong. And then when you hear somebody try to spin it as right or good, then that to me is the bullshit. Or they were forced to do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can talk about that shit with respect to Ukraine for sure. I mean, even when you look back at the Iraq war and stuff like that, I remember watching George Bush the seconds probably one of his State of the Union speeches or something like that, you know, talking about all the successes of the Iraq war and how they, you know, removed some kind of evil from the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I forget what the fuck he said, but I was looking at, I was thinking about all those people I just saw running for their lives in terror on the television. And then I was thinking that, man, like people like really believe this shit. And at the time, right after 9-11, the country was in such a state of nationalist frenzy. I think that that was a really important time for me developmentally because I knew that patriotism was bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't have to read Emma Goldman to learn that. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. I'm not really a team player. And I never gave a shit about the local sports team or anything like that. No, that don't mean you're not a team player. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I just never liked to play on a team where I didn't have nothing to say about yeah. what was going on. You know, the coach was telling me what to do all the time. I'm not a team player. Yeah. I mean, in the positive good sense of like being in a community, I want to be more of a team player, but I think I might not actually be. I mean, you're going to be among a group of people who you agree with and they let you say what you need to say before you all go off and do what you want to agree to do. You know, that's team playing at the highest level. Yeah. Back to that 9-11, I lost a girlfriend behind that. Oh, shit, really? I lost a girlfriend. Not in a battle, but she disagreed with me so much. That was a pinpoint of military strategic. Can you imagine these guys came from the other side of the world with box cutters and brought down the World Trade Center and attacked the Pentagon? That, you know, you got to give people credit for that. And she said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? What kind of person are you? 
well, I'm just me, you know. <laughs> and she, she said, I can't. You mean to tell me that you are supporting people who want to destroy our country? I said, well, they just had box cutters and they attacked the World Trade Center. To me, that's a military target in the Pentagon, hell, whatever. Pentagon is certainly a military target. <laughs> but uh, that was a bunch of bullshit was going on then. Really was. Yeah, I mean, people were out of their fucking mind. And, like, everybody was drummed up all pro-war for two countries didn't have anything to do with the damn thing. Yeah. And I think that, to me, really taught me what bullshit was. Yeah, it is. And I never did like the Star Spangled Banana. Anyway. <laughs> I just never did like it. The idea of just standing up because everybody else was standing up and put your hand on your heart and all that kind of stuff. No. Did you know they got a whole racist verse of that song that they don't sing anymore? Oh, the Star Spangled Banner? Yeah, yeah. They got a whole verse of that that's just like strict. Because, you know, I mean, I'm sure being Canadian, you might be familiar with the history of Black Loyalists. Oh, yeah, I know the Black Loyalists, but I, I don't remember no. You know the verse? Oh, man, I can look it up on the internet, okay. but it's terrible. It's just, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about the darkies. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, something like that, where they're talking about fighting off the British and, you know, the black folks who had joined them. Yeah, right, yeah and trying to suppress that awful thing that's been remembered as the American Revolution. Right, and that's because the American Revolution wanted to be harsher to slaves, be more expansionist across yeah, the Americas, right? Mm -hmm. It was a war to maintain slavery. Yeah, and to, like you said, expand into more indigenous territory, yeah, which yeah. there was a growing abolitionist movement in Great Britain at the time, and there was clear treaties about not moving past the Appalachian mm -hmm. Mountains, and basically the Elites in the colonies were not happy about those arrangements. On the subject of team play, something that just been rattling in my head here is mm -hmm. in order to be part of a team, a team that's just going to ask you to cheer and not have any agency, a team that's going to ask you to be a subservient part to this, they're not showing teamwork in the first place. Right. This patriotic sort of team thing where you have to annihilate yourself to be part of something right. where you have no agency in it. It might be that you're not a team player if a team's not ready to be a team, you know? <laughs> well, I understand a team player when I got kicked off. I was a swimmer, you know, a black swimmer. Oh, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't do what the coach said, you were not a team player. Even if the coach didn't know what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> and you were looking bad in front of the audience at another school. That's hard to take, man. When you know that you can beat these guys and this coach is trying to keep you from beating them. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the hell motivated me, but yeah. I wasn't going to take that too long. Yeah, man. In a positive vision of team player, like I used to play in a rock band, and we weren't very good. But I remember the guys that I would play with. We all really loved playing together, even if we weren't making mm -hmm. the best music, because we did it collaboratively, and mm -hmm, yeah. everybody had a real strong vision of their place and what we were writing and what we were trying to do. And so all of us still sometimes talk about how much we enjoy doing that stuff, even though if you go back and listen to it, it's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> but we really stay in touch because those were valuable experiences to us. And it taught us what artistic collaboration could be, you know, and it's not always like that. I was a member of a little group too. We love one another because we played together. Mm -hmm. and everybody had a contribution to make, you know, and when your time came, mm -hmm. you could make that contribution. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Then you had another theme. Y'all got together and played. Yep. The whole idea of the recurrent theme in modern jazz, mm -hmm. where you play the theme, you know, whatever the theme was, and then each person make their individual contribution or each person join another person in the duet and stuff, and then you come back to the theme and you finish, mm -hmm. you know? That's intimate direct democracy there, too. 
Yeah, I was going to say the whole team player conversation, I feel like definitely ties back into like what you're describing there is uh, having intimacy with people. And I think it's natural. It's natural. The best version of intimacy implies that there's a kind of reciprocity there. Yeah. And it's not the coach team dynamic work in certain management techniques now in a lot of corporations Mm -hmm. they want to have this Mm -hmm. fake intimacy these like team building exercises where it's all still directed from the top and where you're forced to pretend like you're really happy with what's going on or you're so invested in it Um, but when you have those actual intimate relationships where there isn't that hierarchical control uh, or attempt to dominate people it's such a different experience to participate in a team in that sense rather than the top-down sense it's very aesthetically pleasing what you create is really reinforcing your humanity you know it really does makes you feel real good inside yeah like i remember i was a member of what we call the liberty cruisers we each had names but we were all the liberty cruisers you know do you talk to any of those guys anymore are they still around yeah yeah man they man let me tell you, they, I called my saxophone player, Gene Dryer, uh-huh. and I told him that they would tear down Harry's place. Oh, Because yeah. we used to play that. So they tore down Harry's place, and uh, we both cried. Okay, <laughs> when did they tear it down? Just recently. Just recently. He lives in Jonesboro, and I told him, I'd say, man, they didn't tore down Harry's place. The rest of the guys are dead. So that's that's not the one you showed me when we were driving around, is it? No, no, that, that one's still standing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the remnant of the juke joint period. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. is this place that was, was torn down? What was it? It was a juke joint, really. You know a juke joint? You know what that is? It's, no, I don't think they, so. What would you call it? It's a, what was the technical name I came up with? <laughs> It's an African-American secular cultural entertainment center. <laughs> it is, uh, it's in competition with the church for the African-American entertainment weekend dollar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a place where black people come to entertain. It's not the church. you know. It's, we used to play there because they had a bandstand, and we used to play there on Friday night, sometimes Saturday night. And it's just a place where people came to sing, dance, and drink, and have fun. It's called a juke joint in the South. Uh, I'll tell you, it's called a honky-tonk in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> the white people call it a honky-tonk. You got to tell them about the Chitlin Circuit now. Oh, yeah, the Chitlin. They, they know about the Chitlin Circuit. All those and they don't, do y'all know about the Chitlin Circuit? No, lay, lay it on me. I don't know. Okay. Well, there were a whole bunch of little rural places that nurtured African-American secular music, like the church nurtured African-American religious music. They were just little, I'll tell you what, you saw that movie, The Color Purple, when there was a juke joint in the cornfield or somewhere, but it's usually a little nondescript shack. It doesn't have no windows, sometimes no doors, but people entertained there, and the music and the stuff thrived. And people like James Brown, Little Richard, and all of these guys would go from one place to another on the chitlin circuit. The origin of R&B and rock and roll. And then as the urban centers emerged, then they became more like night spots and it became more sophisticated. But it became the Chitlin Circuit. James Brown and all Little Richard, all of them was nourished by that and many others too. That's how they got their start on the Chitlin Circuit. Right. And they served Chitlins. You know what Chitlins are? I recognize the word, but I can't place it. What is it? It's a, I would call it a delicacy. 
was made of prepared intestines of our bovine friends. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and then you clean them up and get the little stuff off, and then you boil them for a day or two. <laughs> and then you can fry them or eat them, you know, put the hot sauce on them. The hot sauce is the killer of everything. And uh, that was a delicacy served in these places. That's why they call it the chitlin circuit. <laughs> With both of you having some involvement in music, do you feel yeah. that your experiences in that sort of complementary, intimate musical relationship informs some of your thoughts on democracy and oh, complementarity in communities? Absolutely. It does. It does. To me, it does. It does. Mm -hmm. My goodness, it does. Those guys that we used to play with, and it's not just us, just anybody that's singing groups, them guys love one another. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And of course, now you have an asshole in there every once in a while. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> but we were lucky. All of us were just regular guys who wanted to play music and, you know, do a little smoking, a little drinking. I, I didn't smoke it because I was younger. I was about 14, 15 years old. I couldn't drink in those places. And the people didn't want, want to have their license taken away. <laughs> taken away. <laughs> so what the lady would do at Harris Place anyway, she would come out with a glass of milk and put the glass of milk on top of the piano. So if the man came there and saw that the boy was drinking the milk. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about that little thing. And I heard that one yet. <laughs> no, no, I forgot all about that one. I remember that lady, too. <laughs> Sean, you didn't play no music? Yeah, no, I've never had the ear for it, I guess. Although I used to tool around my grandma's piano. Oh, yeah. But other than that, I didn't. What about you, Aaron? You make music? I know you're a comedian. More music than comedian in my background. I played drums in a band for a while, like all through high school and junior high school and stuff. Never that great at it, but always really enjoyed the experience of doing it with my friends and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do have a connection, I guess. Like I used to do improv for a long time, and I felt this sort of sense of you get a group of five people joking around together, and it's got that same kind of when to hand it off, when to take it how to support each other, that sort of stuff. It gives you this real sense of how the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. Oh, yes, and I feel like that experience really has informed my direct democracy as well. And actually, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there's this book, The Revolution Will Be Hilarious by Adam Krauss. Yeah. He's a social ecologist. Write that down, Andrew. Revolution Will Be Hilarious, yeah. Yeah, we interviewed him on the show once, and he lays out these connections between comedy and democracy, basically saying that a really good joke is about finding the intersection between two different perspectives. He gives the example of, you know, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I'll never know. <laughs> so what's going on there is there's this bifurcation of these two different meanings of these words, right? Mm -hmm. And that process of anticipating what people are going to think is very similar as the democratic process of anticipating what other perspectives are and then trying to find... So he draws a connection between cracking a really good joke and coming to democratic consensus. Mm -hmm. And this is from a social ecologist that I'm already getting pulled into the social ecology sphere. And I read this and I was like, holy shit. Nice. This guy's just really laying it out yeah. on this deep level. You remember the old days of Laurel and Hardy where they would have the straight guy and the, and the comedic guy and the straight guy. He would deliver the punchline and then do the one line. And then they went to one guy doing the stand up in front of an audience. Yeah. Did, did, did they ever have a collectivity of guys, of people in front of an audience just interchanging with one another? 
Right. No, this is such a good point. Yeah, no, because we the the stand-up comedy form is such a it's got this weird like now it's time for me to lecture you about, you know, yeah, like I'm going to step back and tell it like it really is. But then yeah, yeah. the comedy where you have that straight man and the the goofiness kind of back and forth, there's something so much richer about it. Yeah, 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 it is. I mean, you know, and, and, and that's the way it used to be, man, in, in the old days. And then they, they just had one guy standing there, you know, nobody else. Of course, now he imitated a bunch of, you know, they, they doing imitations and stuff, doing uh, that kind of stuff. But, and, but man, you, you you laid out how, how comedic discourse and counterpoint is actually <laughs> directing my, because I never heard that before, but it sure is. That's excellent. Oh yeah, you got to check out this book. It's it's it, the revolution will be hilarious. It was yeah, it, one of one of my favorite social ecological books. We now go to a dystopian future where conversation has been made illegal. The only form of communications that are allowed are debate, lectures, and performances. We now go to two regular people, just like you and me. We're doing what they must to get by. Hey, man. What's up? Hey, how's it going, man? It's good to see you. Yeah. Just if anyone comes up, we're just having a hushed debate, right? Yeah, or lecture, performance, or something. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Just put your hand up by your mouth so they can't see what that you're. Right, right, right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, they might lip read that we're having a conversation. Yeah, you never know when the cameras are out there lip reading what you're saying in hushed voices. And reconstructing the conversation in order to prosecute. I've heard of that. Oh, these dystopias, man. It sucks. Did you hear they might be outlawing comedy and music next? What? Oh, shit. I know they're performances, but they said conversations. They give people funny ideas, and comedy obviously gives funny ideas, right? So, yeah. Honestly, if they did ban that stuff, that would be so like them. Because this is such a dystopia. Yeah. It's like, what next? Banning comedy and music? <laughs> Get real. But that's the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, it's like music and comedy, man. That's how I vibe. Right, yeah. And conversations. Yeah. That's a whole vibe. Yeah. Except when you gotta have the hand up and do the hush thing, that's not a vibe. Yeah, that's, harsh is it? It's a dystopian vibe. It's just a great way to cope, like to cope with living in a horrible situation. Holding the hand up, or hush conversations in general. Hush conversations in general, but yeah. also comedy and music and perform. Like yeah, absolutely yeah. It is possible for it to be sort of subversive. I get where they're coming from. Oh and yeah, and Ben. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's my favorite stuff jokes about conversations that like oh you know they ban conversations ha, yeah ha, ha. it's a thrill to see a good joke about a conversation and a performance it's almost it's like the real thing about a conversation yeah i'll take what i can get well hey that's coping you know you take what you get and you figure out how to work with it it's a important skill yeah but especially i mean in hard times oh yeah Absolutely. Love coping. If I wasn't coping, then I mean, I wouldn't be doing well by kind of definition, right? Yeah, it's like coping is almost a tautologically good word because it's like if you improve at all, then you've coped by definition. Yeah, like not coping is kind of synonymous with being out of control and like having a problem, like right. not coping well. So yeah, like if someone told me to cope, I would take that as a great compliment because I want something so wonderful for me. Yeah, and likewise, if someone pointed out that I was coping, I would thank them as well. Right, yeah. yeah. It's actually pretty admirable. 
citizens. Yeah. Put your little hand away from your Take mouth. Take the hands down. We caught you. You were putting your hand up to your mouth to have a little quiet conversation, weren't you? Uh-uh, no, no, sorry. This is not a dialogue. That was a rhetorical question. We already know you were having a conversation. Don't even bother trying to say it was a hushed debate or a hushed lecture. We've heard it all before. Heard it all before. If you ain't got nothing to hide, you don't hide your mouths. Unless you're going to use the debate that you were secretly smiling underneath those little hands. But in this district, at this hour, no way. And before you don't ask because you're not allowed, no, we are not having a conversation with each other right now. No. We're both monologuing at, at you, you at the same time. It's protected by the Chalif Union's code of conduct. The entire Chalif department speaks with one big, beautiful voice from the top of one big, beautiful, metaphorical mound. You understand? Don't answer that. All right, put your hands behind your back. We're going to put you into restraining cuffs put earmuffs onto your head and put you on two different sides of... Yeah, the soundproof split middle back car. Yeah, we've invented a way to prevent conversations in the back of the car. You two have proven that you can be trusted to only debate one another. So Solitary confinement for both of you as well. Yeah, we're going to play very loud lectures and songs about right. obeying the law. We figured that if we blast those performances in the back of the car, it might loosen your screws a little bit and help those ideas to get in there and really stick. Yeah, and just incidentally, that's why we at the Chalif Department have taken a stance against the proposed new laws of banning comedy and music. You heard about on your whisper circuit. Yeah, the whisper circuit, the bane of our existence. Uh, well, uh, it also pays our wages. Without that whisper circuit, it couldn't possibly justify yeah. the expenditures of There'd our department. There'd be nobody to crack down on, right? That's true. That's no true. No one's still in solitary confinement en masse. But the point being, we think comedy and music help, you know, kind of loosen the screws a bit and just get the authoritarian ideas in deeper. Right, because you naturally would resist that. So it takes the wizardry and artistry of a deft performer to um, yeah. impose the chains, as it were. Don't you look bored at us. You enjoy this monologue. Yes, this two-mouth monologue should be considered a treat of a performance. Let's close the doors. I was never grateful. Never grateful. No, not at all. Be. Just further proof of their criminality, really. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think we didn't know what was going on with those hands up and the whispers. <laughs> Who puts up their hand to their mouth just to have a debate? Oh, yeah. When I debate, I just scream things whether I, just, I know them yeah, or not. Scream it right it. out. Yeah. Scream. And then if they get on my nerves, go for the jugular. Make it personal. You can turn any conversation into a debate with that tip. Just make yeah. it personal. Make yeah. it personal. Yeah. yeah. It's great. MIP. It's rule number one. Yeah. A lot of people think that means most important person. And it does in many contexts. But it also means make it personal. Yeah. And when we talk about personal, we're not talking about like intimacy, like getting to know each other, having conversations that are vulnerable. We're talking about really trying to figure out what's going to upset them. It's a weapon to win debates, a competitive conversation. That's what it's all about. That's what the, that's the MIP difference. Yeah, you don't want to be vulnerable. You want to make them vulnerable and then hurt them for it. Right, like the larger lobster. Exactly. They'll walk away, this sad lobster, all shrunken down, and you join the Chalif department. You're good enough. Yeah, which we both were. Yeah, so. Do you want to go to the coffee shop with me and get some donuts that taste worse, but are also worse for you because we live in a dystopia? Oh, yeah. You know what? I thought you'd never ask, but as a police officer, I love donuts, and... Oh. A lot of people don't like the worst donuts that are worse for you and taste worse as well, uh, but I prefer them. 
Oh, me too. Yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of harbingers of the dystopia or enforcers of it. Yeah, it's it builds kinda, grit. It builds yeah. sort of like toughness to eat a donut that is less good than it could be. But absolutely, yeah. And they're made with leader water. You know that, right? That's where the grit comes from, the bottom of the stream. Oh, it's, so that's river sentiment I'm tasting. That explains why I build so much character when I eat the modern donut. There's two things I love. It's picking up trash from the streets to make sure that our prisons are well stocked. Oh yeah, people trash, not trash. Yeah, the trash, up the yeah, trash, the trash, trash may stay. And donuts. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, who doesn't love donuts? Let's be honest. Even the lowliest of criminal can appreciate a donut. True. Yeah. It's not unique to us, but I still feel it defines me somehow. Yep. Same way the bird's gotta fly. How I always appreciate having uh, Chalif discussions with you. Technically legal under the charter. This conversation's been so great. I really appreciate getting into all this with y'all. And I, I want to extend also, I want to extend an open invite for you two to return anytime to talk about any subject for any length of time. No, but I really, this, this has just been so excellent. I've, I can feel my mental capacity to create new questions and <laughs> new things is starting to fade. Maybe one good sort of final note for our audience, as I'm curious, we've asked, we've asked the same question to guests that we've had before in the past who have had decades of experience in left spaces. What sort of advice do you have for people who are just getting started out? You know, there's, you know, 18 year olds, 20 year olds, they're getting brought into these radical political spheres for the first time, having put in quite a bit of time to a number of struggles over the years. What do you think that young people should look out for as they, they set out on this political journey? I'm glad you put it that way, looking out for something. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's mean what you shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, if, you had a, if you're in a group of people and there's one or two, one person, or one male person in particular, dominating the conversation and, and telling everybody what to do and judging everybody, and there's no kind of a give and take and there's no kind of consensus and stuff. Don't waste your time there. Don't waste your time there. And don't waste your time with some group of people who you think are doctrinaire and can't grow. You know, don't mm-hmm. waste your time there. Mm-hmm. And if you're and if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. You got to be able to learn from somebody, yep. from people. And whoever's in the room, everybody in the room, no more than any individual in the room. And the experiences are different. I mean, they have a lot to share with one another. That's what makes it rich in a, in a human sense, mm-hmm. in a loving human sense. And if you raise democratic questions and you get purged, don't worry about mm-hmm. it. It's called <laughs> Yeah, so it should be a badge of honor to get doing you a for such good reasons. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I realize that now. I've been purged a couple of times. It's good. Yeah, and if you see some some people just not good people, that they lie all the time or deceptive or something like that, and they're not just good people and they mistreat their friends and their girlfriends and their boyfriends mm-hmm. and stuff, don't, don't waste your time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's Andrew's contribution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in what you got to say, man. Patience and humility will take you far in in life and in organizing and in your relationships with other people who are doing this kind of work. And just always, even if you 
think you are hot shit and you got all the answers on something, just step back and, and recognize how much you have to learn from other people. And having some clarity about the past and how it informs the kind of future that you want to create. Mm-hmm. I really think that social ecological movements and the anarchist movement and any kind of liberatory movement moving forward, we're going to have to continue to look at what archaeologists are doing because it's really changing the game. That being said, another my only other bit of advice is to find a project or projects that, that you love to do and that you know that you can contribute. In doing this project, you know you can contribute something good to the world and find what that is and stick with it. You know, like Sean and Aaron, like I'm sure you you have done with your podcast. Find something, a project you love that means something to you. You know you can do something, contribute something good to the world with it and, and stick with it and uh, always be learning. Mm. You know? That's all what life is about, man. You, you come here, you look around, see what's going on. You help people, they help you. Decide how you want them, your children to live, you know what I mean? Then you go to work. I appreciate that. that, that, that uh, such such great advice and thoughts from both of you. I also, I really appreciate the humility piece, the kindness piece came up. I always feel like these are sometimes left out. We get in these mm-hmm. very theoretical discussions on the left mm-hmm. that sometimes drown out some of the basics about how we treat each other. Yeah. And I feel like the continuity between those things of how we treat each other, how we think of ourselves, how we listen to other people, mm-hmm. um, it sometimes gets left out in a way, even though it's so central to the project of human emancipation. Because yeah. mm-hmm. uh, we want to have a society where people treat each other right, where people yeah. have humility, where people build each other up. And it's, it's part and parcel of the whole means and ends question here. Yeah, but it's been nice talking with you guys, man. Uh, I'm yeah, it's been great. To seeing y'all face to face, you know, and uh, exchanging more information and more ideas about how we can make this a better world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. I, yeah, and likewise, if y'all find your way up here to Vancouver in Canada, I'd love to to link up, try to help you find up. a place to. I'm trying to get up there at some point. Andrew, we got to go out to Vancouver, Canada. That's the yeah, rest. we do. My brother Ed lives up here. Third, third largest city in Canada now. Yeah, that sounds about right. I know it's beautiful out there. Yeah, beautiful part of the world. Yeah, well, we have to come out there and check out the ecology of the landscape. Yeah, see some whales or something. Yeah, 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 man. All right, then. We, we, we finish with this. I'll play this off. <laughs> For the time being. <laughs> yeah. Take us, Andrew, Andrew, take us home, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all take it easy, <laughs> And we'll just pop out this tape and put that one in the archive, internet archive of interviews we've done with great guests on Seriously Wrong. <laughs> and that's what the tape was. Happy to share it with you today. This is actually included in that tape as well. Uh, yeah. In the long term. We recorded this earlier, but we're saying it now as we pop the tape out. But it's on the tape. Yeah. Well, that's just about all the time we have to for fun and hijinks today. But we'll be back again soon enough and chances are if you're listening to this at some point in the future other than immediately when it was released there might even be more episodes after this one that are ready as we speak it should mostly be that yep. mathematically yep although i was i was thinking about this because we've said this before obviously there's more days after the next episode after this than the before but also 
you get the biggest bump in downloads in the first week. Like, there's more points in history where it won't be in the first week, but it might be true that the most people will listen to it in the period where there isn't any new episodes after this. Right, yeah, yeah. If the bump yeah. is big enough, if the mound is big enough there yeah. in the first week. If you get, like, 10,000 listens in the first week and then only 9,000 more over the rest of history then most people listening to this right now won't have any new episodes ahead of them. Right. I guess with my assumption on that, it was always sort of tied on the premise that inevitably in like the 3000s or something, we would become an unprecedented hit, appreciated. Right. Not in our own lifetime, but in some future society that... And obviously they won't like all the same things. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just saying it's everyone... Everyone everyone gets their 15 minutes across the... You know, 3,000 years. Right, right, right. Yeah, you just had already thought. I just had been thinking a number of days. So it kind of was a, it was a mind trip. Right. Total yeah. mind trip. <laughs> also, one small thing I'm just going to cheekily mention is that we're funded by donations on Patreon. So if, uh, if you want there to be more episodes of the show, you can go there. You probably know how Patreon works and all that. And, uh, right? You remember Patreon. Yeah, if you watch any YouTubers, uh, many of them also use Patreon. Other podcasters, you've probably heard of it. It's a crowdfunding site. And uh, we use it to butter our bread and bake our beans. So uh, if you can help us buy more beans and butter, or margarine maybe, vegan, if you want us to buy butter, (laughs) let us know. Uh, But either way, donate to the Patreon, please. Thank you to everybody for all the different various reasons. You you know what you did. Hmm? Talking to everyone. You know what you did to deserve thanks. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they... (laughs) I wasn't saying that to you. I wasn't like, Aaron, you know what you did. No, yeah, I didn't think that. I just... If someone said that to me, I would try to think about what I did that could possibly... That I know of. I'd check my records quickly. Next time on Seriously Wrong, the wrong boys cope harder. Message to my enemies. I'm going to cope as hard as I can. Coping is good. I cope so good, I'm coping every minute of every day. Coping made me the guy that I am. If I didn't cope, I wouldn't have the means to create and recreate myself over time. And whatever you throw at me, whatever bullshit that I encounter, I'm going to cope in the face of it. Every time I go on the internet and someone makes me mad, I read a dumb take, I read a thing. I'm just coping. I'm coping so good. I cope that's, right through that. It bounces sick. off me. I'm coping. Like, yeah. Uh, what sound do you imagine cope sort of dodge? Like, swing? Like, <laughs> yeah, swing. Maybe t- a little, like, t- a guitar t- cope. riff. Like, <laughs> Coped. Oh, you thought you were going to upset me? Well, that didn't work. I'm coping. Here's hoping I'm coping. I hope that you... And yours are coping because it's an important life skill. And I'm going to cope as hard as I can without apology. It's beautiful. We're absolutely coping so hard right now. It's funny. It is funny. (laughs) And we are coping. Yeah, absolutely. Coping, not seething, but coping. Yeah. Not seething because we're coping. No, not a seething bone in my body. Pure cope. Pure cope. I hope that's on my grave. Pure cope. A life well coped. 
Because we live in dark times, folks. Have a... <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>